ciao e benvenuto nel gioco riguarda la gloria e benvenuto Antonio. Hello and welcome to the games about glory and welcome Antonio. My name is Steph and joining me are Milo, Ricky and for the first time on the games about glory, our very special guest Simon. Hello chaps. Hello Simon. Hi Hi there. Hi Simon. Some of you might know Simon better as Spurs International on Twitter and Simon joins us from his current base in Sweden. Am I correct? You are in Sweden right now? I'm in Sweden. I'm two hours south of Stockholm at my mom's place where I'm uh, hanging out with some family. Excellent. And uh, I can now crack the joke I cracked with you last week when you listened in, which is that Simon suffers from Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) Wonderful. Now we've got that uh, shite humour out of the way and you're versed in it. Uh, Look, look, there's so much to talk about, including the Premier League Tottenham managerial debut for our new manager, a head coach, as I suppose he is called in modern parlance, Antonio Conte. That's Antonio Conte. I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to say his name without beaming or just being overdramatic. We will thankfully be unable to avoid discussing him as we analyse the game at Goodison earlier against Everton and also his first taste of our wild football club last Thursday against Vitesse Arnhem. And look, I, I'm just going to throw this in. Sorry, uh, Milo, you can put it on the floor as you want, but but it delights me because I love a manager with class, character, charisma and cojones. The four C's equal Conte and sweet Jesus plus whatever that is in Italian, am I looking forward to his time with us? We will also be taking a look at youth development. What is the best way of bringing through young players and should we consider a B team or a feeder club? We'll be looking at the vital roles these branches can play, looking at the talent these avenues can produce and looking at what the future role of these lifeblood areas of the club might be in the future. How will we find the next Harry Kane and will we be able to hold on to and further develop the likes of PSV's Nani Maduki in the said future? But before all, let's kick off the pod with this week's intro question. What's your favourite smell, Simon? Ooh, my favourite smell. I think I have to go with the Eritrean food, which is basically the food from my home mm. country, Eritrea. When I grew up, I remember I grew up in Sweden, out in the boondocks. So I was the only black kid in Sweden in the eighties. Not in Sweden, but where I grew up in that small little village called Hovsta. And I remember I got a lot of stick for smelling like garlic and hot spices when I went to school. So I usually used to hide my clothes, and it was a big source of embarrassment for me. But nowadays I I wear that. Smelly clothes with pride. <laughs> wow! Yeah, that's 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 amazing. Actually, it's quite a heavy story. <laughs> that's yeah. me. No, it is. I mean, that's quite. It is quite a heavy story. So, um, a nice ending to it. Okay, who's next for the smell of vision? The favourite smells. Uh, three, two, one. Well, Ricky, you're looking down and shaking your head in dismay. So I have to go to you. You're making it so you know, such an easy. Choice. Like every week, I I kind of I don't want to waste too much time, but I have got two. <laughs> but you're going to ask me what both are. But one might interest you, Steph. But one is a bit root one, basically. I think my 16-year-old self, my kind of first little, my first little job at um, Asda, I had the pick of what department I'd want to work in, you know, meat, fruit and veg and that. And of course, everyone, what are you going to pick? It's the bakers, isn't it? Because the smell of fresh bread is just absolutely divine. Mm. And that continues on there. Even if I'm like holidaying in France, the boulangerie can't beat it. It's just something, it's just. Something that's magical. Never get sick of that. But here's the better one, Steph. I had a cat when we lived more in the country in one of our previous houses. I had a cat called Cyril. And um, at this time of year when it gets really cold and stuff like that, he used to 
coming through the cat flap and his fur was all kind of fluffed up and all really cold. And when you picked him up, he had this smell that I will never forget. And he just, and, <laughs> Absolutely. And we used to call it nighttime fresh. He had this kind of nighttime fresh smell and it was just such... And we almost used to race to him when he came through. You know, the first one to pick him up got the kind of nighttime fresh smell. And that's... I'll never forget that. What a lovely cat he was. If I'd have been your neighbour, I'd have been elbowing you out of the way because that sounds sensational. I am truly taken with that. Can I just ask, is that a British thing? Wet cat? What, cat sniffing? (laughs) Because I've never heard of that. That's not a thing in Sweden. I'm a cat sniffer and I'm British. (laughs) Kitty huffing ain't a crime, I'm telling you. Kitty huffing is not a crime. He wasn't wet. He had that kind of cold air, you know, that kind of bonfire night kind of air. Honestly, it lives with me now. Wonderful. Just a really weird thing to sort of capture you, but definitely. No. Simon, don't don't lump me in with these weirdos. <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> I have to ask, you know, as an international fan of, of Spurs, sometimes you hear these things you guys say, and you go, is that a British thing, or am I out of the loop? <laughs> <laughs> so my so mine's a childhood one as well and it's kind of food related i used to um it's the smell of tomatoes on the vine my um my grandmother my grandma um i used to spend a lot of time with her stay with her a lot when i was a kid and she had a greenhouse and grew tomatoes in there and one of my jobs was watering them and um she died when i was quite young and Kind of like one of my abiding memories is kind of like whenever I smell that, wherever I am, if I smell tomatoes on the vine, I think of her and I think of that greenhouse. And um, yeah, it's a happy, it's a happy memory. And like uh, the memories with smells are some of the strongest, yeah. aren't they? Definitely. Kind of the, the things that you associate with them. So yeah, so every time I smell tomatoes on the vine, it takes me back there and that's that's a good place. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's a brilliant question and, and th- should probably not be a secret to any of that. Milo is the one who plants this question in the script each week and I'm always quite intrigued to know what it is. I never pay attention to it much in advance because <laughs> I like to be caught on the harp. No, because they are intriguing questions and the sense of, you know, the scent of smell is very, very true. I mean, you know, anyone of a certain vintage, if I say the word Wesslers, you'll immediately be able to smell that despicable uh, uh, thing called meat you know, that was on the hot dog carts uh, outside any football match uh, back mm. in the 80s, and you'd be able to. That, instantly is not my smell. I've got two, kind of like you, Ricky, um, but they are both animal-related. So, uh, Simon, yes, it probably is a British thing, um, just <laughs> to confirm it. that. Um, but I smell my cat. I, I bury my nose in my cat for comfort sometimes to calm me down, to lower my heart rate. And if I want to escape to a favourite smell I had as a kid when I used to go and visit um, relations in Ireland and they had a dog that I used to sort of, you know, when you're five or six, you snuggle with the dog and whatever. And there was a certain smell behind this Basset Hound Bill's ear. And my dog has exactly the same smell behind her ear. And if ever I'm sort of really distressed or kind of freaking out about something, I'll just go and lie down with her and I kind of sniff behind her ear. And it just, it brings me to that place and by proxy a happy place. So I'm not sure how many listeners were actually going to lose by admitting that half of this pod sniffs their pets. Can you imagine if you've never listened to this podcast ever before? Well, to tie it in, to tie it into Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, I can tell you that I don't think I've ever sniffed animal fur or ears more than during the Jose Mourinho era of Tottenham Hotspur because, by Christ, I needed more comfort than you can imagine. But anyway... Let me ask you guys, if Spurs, he says, you know, smells are connected to memories, which I think is a correct statement. So let me ask you guys, if Spurs was a smell, what smell was it? would it be oh come on what era are we talking about we've had the full bouquet my friend you can choose are you, you talking choose. about kevin scott era one nil defeat at coventry when it looks like we're going down 
I'll go first and I'll say that if ever you could get the electric scent of fresh sea air like that just is crackling with life and maybe a bit of lightning out there on the horizon but just the salt and the excitement and and the you know the the briskness of it that for me is Ricky Veer's cup final win goal in 1981 which I was stood in line watching at the lower tier that's what that that would be what that smelled because it was so such an electric and fresh moment and so like it was you know, transcendental beautiful. so that's my effort oh I was introduced to about the gents at half time in the old White Hart Lane it was horrible it was kind of pissing <laughs> pissing cigarettes it was awful that's fantastic it's <laughs> oh dear it's like Pete and Dud so good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, mine's not no better than Milo's really. It's the kind of um, it's the kind of smell of alcohol and clothes and sticky floors of like um, Amsterdam <laughs> when you know we we somehow managed to make it to the Champions League final. Um, so now that we've clarified that, believe it or not, there is only one place to start. Even though we've brought you to uh, many others, and uh, that was good. That I enjoyed that very good indeed. But let's get back to it. There is only one place to start in the week that was. Rumoured last Monday night, before being confirmed last Tuesday morning, our new manager, Antonio Conte, was announced. He signed an 18-month contract with the option of another year, and having gone so close in the summer, I cannot lie. This is an absolute banger of an appointment, and one to set the hearts and expectations racing. Look, Conte is undoubtedly one of the best managers in the world. In the last 10 years, he has won Serie A four times, the Italian Super Cup twice, the FA Cup once, and the Premier League once, at our expense, actually, in a season where we got 86 points. Conte's Chelsea, they got 93. The appointment is a real statement by the club. You know, I, I think that's very true. And at this point, I'd like you all to give me, you know, g- give, give me like 30 seconds each on how this, you know, how this appointment hit you when it was announced. Uh, Ricky, why don't you start? Well, um, after what's been going on the previous weeks, um, I'm pretty much like you, Steph. You know, you've got to be smiling with this one. Uh, I'm not even going to go top 10. This this chap's a top five manager, I think. And for him to walk into our club, um, I mean, you have to say, well done on getting that over the line, getting him, uh, well, it seems like giving him probably what he wants. I think he I think he suggested in his interview that he at the time it wasn't right for him with Inter Milan. I think that was a lot of old spin, basically. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it definitely was. At the time, we felt uncomfortable with his demands. And of course, the the landscape shifted whether that's in levy's head or whether financially it generally has shifted i mean covid seems as though well i don't want to say it's over but it looks like he's more convinced about our income coming on but i don't want you know i don't want to fate it or anything but it's feeling like it's feeling like development and progress is guaranteed with this chap he's got a no nonsense sort of straight down the line way of talking and i think simon, um i think we was alluding when we was talking to simon the other week that um i think if we have a team that's in in, in his image then I don't think we're going to be far off. And I mean, it's going to, t- I think he's alluded to that. It's going to take time. There's stuff, you know, there's stuff, definitely stuff that he's got to work for and sort out. But um, I think, and I'd like to say as well, like, I think with Paratici, with Levy and with uh, Conti, I think we've got three, th- three workaholics, basically. I think we've got three workaholics there that will do everything for this club. I agree with that. Uh, Milo, why don't you um, tell us if you're excited by this appointment? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, in terms of where he is at the point he's appointed, he's got to be the best manager we've ever appointed. In terms of his stature into, you know, within the game, he's got to be the best manager we've ever appointed at that point. And I think in terms of kind of general first impressions of him, you know, he's a very, very, very polished media performer. Um, I think he's quite clearly using the media in order to get his message across to the players and to the fans and to the club. 
you know, he's quite consistent in that in terms of kind of the language he's using. We're seeing sacrifice and suffering being talked about time and time and time again. And I think some of that is actually a message for us about trying to dampen down our expectations because the worst thing that could happen to him right now is we all get carried away and think that um, you know trophies and top four are guaranteed this season just because he's walked in the door and that he can turn it around straight away. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of his message is, is to us in order to us to be patient and give him the space to work. I've seen quite a lot of people um, um, excited about someone who's going to shout at the players. And I think that's a bit of a misreading of the situation. I think part of the problem we've had over the last few years is we've been a little undercoached. And I think, <laughs> and, and that's certainly not going to be the case with Conte. Conte is um, very, very precise in the way he wants his teams to play. You know, he, he take, almost takes decisions out of players' hands and tells them what they're going to do in any given situation. And I think that's, that's, what, that's going to be the, the main thing that makes a difference. You know, I, I always think back to kind of the managers that I, you know, in my work, in my working life, who I respond to and the people who are, who are down on me and shout at me, uh, they might get um, a, short, a short lift out of me for a short period of time. But after a while, I just want them to fuck off and leave me alone. Yeah, I think I think that's a little. I think you know his his anger or his you know that kind of stuff is a little bit overstated, and I think people are are, are underestimating how how um, kind of the tactical side that we're, that we've been missing. Right, I think there is, uh, as you say, a great danger to oversimplifying things that we see for thirty seconds on a camera versus the man that really is there. And so far, I have yeah. to say, the man that's there is showing an incredible commitment, passion, the club, uh, even in the first week, Simon. Uh, which player are you the most excited to see uh, Conte develop? <clears throat> you know, who do you think is really going to benefit from him? Give us a couple. Uh, you know, g- give us one that you're excited to see that maybe we all are expecting to get a bounce from him. And you know, give us an under the radar sleeper. I think this answer might be a little bit boring, but to me, what I've always I've had kind of a problem with this. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's move on. No, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's the game is about glory humor. The boring answer is Kane and Son. I've kind of had a problem, or it's been something that I've had a hard time kind of this rebuild kind of narrative that's been around the appointment of, of Nuno and this and Paratici's kind of arrival at the club. I've been a little bit worried because I've never kind of seen how Son and, and Kane fits into that timeline. We kind of club in in these two different states. One is that we're in a rebuild. You know, we need to get younger. We need to kind of get some old heads out, some experience out. People that's been at the club for too long. People call them deadwood. I, I don't particularly like that um, uh, that word. But at the same time, I kind of felt bad for these older. They're not old, but you know, Kane is what twenty eight. Son is twenty nine, and I kind of didn't know what their place was in this new timeline. So Conte coming in directly kind of is a shock to the system, kind of stops that lead. He he indicates ambition now. And just generally for Son and Kane, uh, who both love this club, and I'm guessing all they want is to win something with this club, I feel particularly happy for them. And also Luis, I should get in there. So I think they will have a great time you know, learning and, and being, uh, you know, motivated by, by someone like Conte. On the other side, someone that you might not think about, I know this might not be the most popular answer, but Winks and Dele actually, I think, might have um, a better time on the Conte. Or at least their, their path forward will become clearer much faster. First, I think the system, which is very 
optimized content system, which is he tells you what you're supposed to do, could benefit someone like Delhi and uh, and Winks. And then also, if they are not good enough, I think finally we have someone with authority that can tell Levy that they need to go. So that's where I'm at. I think those are two good picks. I, I'm I'm intrigued what he does with Delhi because there's a couple of options there, isn't there? He could continue with the um, with the Nuno thing of playing him in central midfield as a you know, hard working, you know, ground covering central midfielder i'm intrigued to see whether he tries something that you've talked about simon on twitter a few times as a striker and i wonder if they if we go to 352 whether he could be sun's understudy and and play that second striker role there which i think would be interesting mm. it's um under i'm fascinated to see what he does with Underbelle as well yeah i'll back you up with the winks comment 100 percent. i feel that winks is a player that could really benefit from him because lest we forget harry winks was once a really wonderful little recycler of the ball, turn and go and play that quick pass forward. was very dynamic. Um, obviously, he lost his way in a similar fashion to Delhi, in a sense, because he ended up having to play roles that weren't necessarily his natural role. And one thing we do know about Conte is that he does not like square pegs and round holes. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if he can if he can make it work. And I, I think that's a really good shout. Uh, and before we move on, it would be churlish of me not to mention another element of Conte that I absolutely love, which is his famous rivalry with Jose Marie, whom he once referred to as a little man. He was a little man in the past. He is a little man in the present. And for sure, he will be a little man in the future. Lovely. And again, welcome to the lane. <laughs> um, the other thing that happened, uh, well, many things happened in the week that was, but the other main thing that happened was by proxy his first game in charge against Vitesse. When I say in charge, I mean, he got his work permit late. Ryan Mason took training, uh, albeit under the Hawkeye of, of watching Antonio Conte, whose presence, by the way, I believe, and I have no evidence of this, I've never met the man, but I believe he's one of these people who projects uh, a real magnetism that you would instantly be floored by. He just seems like that type of bloke. Am I not correct? Are you are you laughing at my fawning over? No, no, no. I, 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 I was thinking that maybe Ryan Mason taking training might have been the first example of uh, Conte's automization that we've seen so far in that <laughs> he's drilled him again and again and again and what he's allowed to do in training and then sends him out to do it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, and, and, and if he did so, it worked because we had, well, we had a 3-2 win. It was probably a little more interesting than we wanted it to be. Certainly a little more interesting than, than Antonio Conte wanted it to be. But... He will see the Proletariat Champions League as a trophy that he can win, a trophy he's never won. So he's going to want to win it. 3-2 victory is good stuff. You know, what did you think of the of the lineup and what did you think of the way we played? Uh, Milo, we'll start with. Um, I think in the lineup, I think it's a bit of a halfway house at the moment. He hasn't had a lot of time with the players. And I think he was, I think at the moment he's focusing on a couple of key areas so obviously the big change is uh, moving to a back three and playing with wing backs and I think the front three was a halfway house yeah it's a, it's a formation that we've played this season it's something that the players are used to and I think I, I suspect that's not how we're going to end up playing but there's only so much change you can do in one time so I think uh, that was a sensible and pragmatic approach and you know we can we can we can talk about kind of the the balance in central midfield or, or or other areas but i think broadly speaking given the time he had i think i think he did pretty well and the, the first half an hour was great ricky yeah how different was this to our b team's performance in arnhem a couple of weeks ago other than being a lot more exciting well, I think that was it. We were a lot more excited. So as um, Milo said, that first half hour, I don't know if we was on adrenaline or whether we were we were playing completely to instructions or just throughout 
you know, it looked like at least we were responding to the manager. We were a lot more further up the field. Um, the wing backs were always trying to help and trying to add to the attack. Obviously, the game changed and uh, Vitesse came back into it. But um, I thought, did anyone notice? I thought one thing that was interesting, did you notice on the touchline, the thing I quite liked is when there was close-up shots of um, Conte, did anyone notice his, um, he's got some quite ticks and he's twitching all the time, isn't he? Did you see that? Do you see the old, I thought that was like the neural pathway sparking and he was taking, he was <laughs> drinking it all in and he was thinking, oh, and it's, but that was great to see. He's, he's massively intense and I think that will be reflected in the team. Um and and I'm not he's like a mad conductor, isn't he? On the sideline, he's like some mad orchestra conductor. I mean, he's like Andre Previn on speed or something. I think that someone said in the chat. I mean, he had the full Tottenham experience in that game, where we kind of because we just <laughs> thought three 0 bang, we we're absolutely marching over this lot completely. And then once again, he gets a little bit of taste of you know the other bit of Tottenham that's still there. So three two is the classic Spurs score, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And Simon, you know, I mean, obviously. I'm assuming you didn't make it from Sweden to the training sessions, but I'm going to ask you to speculate based on what you saw. I mean, you know, what did you think changed after just a couple of training sessions with, you know, the Antonio factor? I think first and foremost, we all saw some structure when we saw a plan and we saw identity and we saw patterns and we saw something I've been screaming about with, which is we saw us actually using the flags and actually using our fullbacks or wingbacks in this instance. I think, you know, Conte has a very optimized system. He has a system which is very much, it's dynamic. He likes to attack with speed. He likes to invite pressure. And then he likes to quickly, you know, pass out from the back using the the center backs that are on the uh, wide side. Or if it's if the pressure is too, um, if they drop too deep, he used to play it over. And I think I actually saw uh, one touch passes and I saw off ball movement. So, you know, yeah. I think he wasn't allowed to train this, <laughs> to, to, to actually hold the training sessions, but you could clearly see a plan and an identity starting to take form. And then I think it's an, a combination, I said it today, it's a combination of time. Like when it doesn't succeed, he hasn't had enough time to kind of drill these these movements and, and triggers into the team. But also, it's in some instances, the lack of ability. I think we have a, a weakness on the left side. I don't know if Davis is, is good enough on the ball. I don't know if if uh, Dyer is kind of stable enough to kind of hold up the back line. Um, I, 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 have to, I, I, I have to stop you there, Simon. You've crossed an imaginary line here. Eric Dyer is somewhat <laughs> beyond criticism for, for me, unfortunately. <laughs> Although secretly, I understand that I am in a minority of one against millions. But uh, no, I understand what you're saying. Would you agree that fitness also was something we saw in the Vitesse game that plays into it? For 35, 40 minutes, hammer and tongs, and then we just got knackered out. And in fairness, he used the substitutes very, very well. Uh, Milo, come on in. Yeah, I was just going to say, one of the differences that I've noticed in saying both games is that uh, we've seen the return of Lloris, the sweeper-keeper. Uh, at times last season, he was stuck to his line. Uh, even under Nuno, he didn't come out too much. And he's been commanding his area. He's been coming out of the area far, far more aggressive than we've seen him for a long time. I mean, even under Poch, he he um, 
he'd stopped coming out of his box quite so much. So that's quite a marked change. And I, I didn't think he had it in him anymore. So it's been a, a bit of a revelation these last couple of games. But we also know that means there'll be a howler at some point because he'll get it wrong. Ricky, save us so as we can wrap this up and move on to today's game. I was just going to add, I know um, Conte's obviously his own man, but it does make you wonder how much, um, whether he's going to harvest many thoughts from... Um... Paratici's four months already here regarding players and what he knows and whether that's going to have a factor on the pathways he chooses and the selections and that. I think the other thing we found the other night was um, that because we then let in the two goals and it got a bit shaky the game, I think that might have put a just mm. put a Conte on kind of notice that he might still have to be feeling it out defensively a bit and maybe that's why we're still seeing Hoiberg and Skip for a bit because, I mean, the other managers have found that as well and I thought that was a bit like that today as well, but we'll get on to Everton later. Yeah, but I was just going to say, like, I think also Milo um, kind of addressed it, but this having just two in the midfield against such a, I mean, Vitesse might not be world beaters, but they're a well-coached team and they kind of just overrun the midfield and just being mm-hmm. two for in that system is very taxing. So I kind of also kind of feel just, uh, you know, you let one goal in and then you're tired and then focus goes and then you, you're kind of confused about oh, what am I supposed to do now? What? And you have Nuno in your brain and you have Conte in your brain and you have, you know, a lot of things going on. I, th- I think Vitesse were quite happy to yeah. go three on three with our centre-backs. And mm. because even our centre midfielders were pushing forward quite a lot and supporting, quite often they find found it quite easy to like just then be onto our defence. And, you know, a be- mm. I think some of the commentators said at half-time, a better team would, you know, yeah. penalise us massively for that kind of thing. But. So before we move on, can I just give a little shout-out to, to Kane? He's... he's um... He's coming for a lot of stick this season, and I've seen a bit on online after Thursday. But he had a hand in all three goals. His pressing led to the first goal, and the second goal was a lovely uh, turn and pass to Mora th- through for that. And his pressing again led to the third goal. And then also, when we went down to ten men, his holding up the ball and bringing others into play and drawing fouls, and actually, you know, the foul on uh, the, the, their first red card really, really um, helped us. I think without him, we lose that game. Closing out the VTS game, first of all, I, you know, I agree with the observations that you've all made. And to address what you just said, Milo, about Harry Kane, and somewhat to double back on what you were querying there, Ricky, about Paratici uh, maybe, you know, giving content information about the players. I have a theory that he's been receiving dossier-type information from, Par- you know, from Paratici for some time. Obviously, that's me speculating. I have no proof of that whatsoever. There were reports this week, Steph, that he's been watching All or Nothing since the summer. So he's watched the series to get an idea about the squad. <laughs> In which case, he would never have taken the job, would he? I mean... <laughs> I saw that you are joking when you no, say... No, 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 I'm not. No, serious. Seriously, this, uh, he, he... Come on. Yeah, yeah. He's surely just watching that so as he can have a laugh at the tosser who was in before him. <laughs> Do you talk about Nuno or Mason there? I mean, either way, no, that's not no. that's not fair. No, evidently he's been watching the he'd watching all or nothing to get to get a, an idea about the squad and the players. There was the wow. report. Well, I would certainly hope in that case that being the thorough man he is, he also got full access to the outtakes and all the things that you weren't allowed to see because he won't have learnt too much from that show, really, will he? I mean, in fairness, he won't. <laughs> he will have learnt to avoid the canteen at breakfast time because yeah. Levy helps me sat there. <laughs> yeah, grilling him about what player to play. But yeah, but seriously, he, he will certainly have learnt that, that Harry Kane... I mean, this is not rocket science. Harry Kane needs to be uh, loved and also needs to be encouraged and also needs to kick up the backside, frankly. I think all of the, all of the above. And I think that, you know, the early signs against Vitesse are that we're seeing that. You're absolutely right, Milo. And, uh, you know, the last 15 minutes of work he did was 
that was wily international class work to you know to stem the tide as it was coming at us when we were tiring we were a bit a little dithery and i've no doubt that that's the sort of stuff that conte is going to add to his game that's going to really help him but you guys read that interview he did in the mix zone where he kind of basically talked about disappointment and the ambition it showed from the club and he really took some leadership and and, and talked about how all the players needed to start again suffering for the club sacrificing working at home working 24-7. So, I mean, the moment I kind of saw that, those quotes, um, I was like, oh, he's going to be fine. He's going to, you know, he's going to kick on. So just to recap, it was a 3-2 win. We did go 3-0 ahead, Son Lucas and uh, our new signing Rasmussen. No, it wasn't. It was an own goal. But then he popped up for Vitesse to score and Barrow got them very close to coming fully back into the game. All the goals were in the first half. We managed to keep them out. We march on. We're in a very good position in that group. And hopefully, you know, it's the first steps, not to put any expectation on him, but uh, to Antonio's first trophy for the club. Now doing exactly what Milo was hoping that no Spurs sports would do. It won't be his first trophy for the uh, for the club. The League Cup final is in February. Excellent. You're joining me on uh, you're joining me on optimistic way, aren't you? On uh, on yeah, brilliant. On hype hype avenue. And hype avenue was buzzing this afternoon when we went to Goodison Park to play Everton. Uh the last time that Antonio Conte faced Rafa Benitez, he was managing Chelsea and Rafa was Newcastle boss. Uh the waiter won that game 3-0, but no such luck today Rafa, despite the fact you had Everton playing uh, uh, what I consider to be one of the the more, uh, shall we say, physically aggressive. Ah, no, I'll just say it. dirty performances of the season. Uh, it was a nil-nil draw and it played out. You know, I'm going to throw this out there for a start. Everyone's going on that we had no shots on target. You know, I thought we created many good moments that we couldn't capitalise on for a variety of reasons. And I still argue all day with the statisticians. When you hit the post, that to me is an on-target shot because the post is part of the goal and so be it. That's that's my thing. And I know that I, there are no people disagree with it here and we can get into it another time. But Simon... I mean, I asked that question on, on Twitter. I was like, we hit the, the, the post. How is that not the target? It's a target. And I mean, there's, I, I thought that was just, just a ridiculous, uh, it was just a ridiculous thing to kind of, you know, zero in on. It's, it's just, I don't know. Cause there's, there's no, there's no shots on target and there's shots, no shots on target. And we had chances. Uh, I, I didn't think that stat particularly reflected what the game was. I don't think it's particularly revealing, is it? I mean, I think what I would look at is intent and the intent in this game was very, very different from, from last weekend. And, we were constantly looking to get forward quickly and to attack and to play, to do something with the ball. We weren't scared of the ball. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, we're not, we're not a full Conte team at the moment and not, nowhere near, but the intent was very, very different. And that's what we should be looking at. And and actually, you know, I think statistically, again, Everton had more shots on target than us, but there was they didn't really trouble us. Yeah, their best chance of the game was a failed penalty appeal, really. Yeah, and actually, I mean, since you've brought it up, we'll go slightly out of chronology with the way the game ran. That penalty appeal was, I mean, it was so naff. I mean, it was what a naff appeal and what a naff uh, reaction from everyone. I mean, I think the naked eye could see that his hand got to that ball. It wasn't even really close. That's what astounded me. We dove in 
on the waiters, you know, grittily prepared Everton. Uh, they were missing several players, so it's probably as much as we could have expected from them. Um, mm. Ricky, I'm going to ask you about two chances that we created, which probably tell us as much about Antonio Conte as uh, and what he's doing as anything. Uh, one was to the head of Emerson Royale, and the other was to the boot of Sergio Reguilón. Uh, these are prime examples, actually, of, of, of chances that I would consider to be as clear-cut as like a shot from 30 yards that trickles towards the goal and is picked up by the goalkeeper, but counted as an on-target shot. But you know, walk, walk us through what you remember of those chances and generally what that tells you about how Antonio Conte wants us to Well, attack. I think um, Royal's header was uh, wing-back to wing-back, wasn't it? I think Reggie... <laughs> and yeah, it was. I thought, I thought Royal could have actually done a little bit better with it, but because um, uh, it was coming over the top of the defender's head, I think I he should have judged it a little bit better. But that's a good sign. I mean, it's... It's a long time since we made a combination like that happen, and and the other one was just right at the end of the right at the end of the first half. And Kane once again shows that he's great at crossing when he needs to be, and that's one one bit of Reggie's game that I think he could improve. I don't know if he gets a tiny bit excited because he gets in good positions and even in quite controlled positions where it's not like you know he's under pressure. And I think he could just. And I think he, he's young. I do see that. I didn't think Reggie had actually that great a game today, but um, I'm not 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 bad, but. If he can keep his head in those positions and become someone that contributes goals um, and being a wing-back, you do expect some of that. I see uh, Alexander-Arnold, I think, scored and assisted again today. Mm. I mean, I know that's, you know, he's a high-level player. I think I'd add that I think there was two times in the first half where Davis even gave the ball in, played the ball in, and then ran beyond the midfield to, like, join the attack, which is like, he's one of the centre-halves. And also Davis had a quite a good shot in the second half, I think, as well. So for one of our kind of three centre-halves to do that, that's really showing kind of progression. But overall, though, I thought Everton, I thought they played well. I think Benitez had put a rocket up them at the start there. They were pressing us. I mean, that's what, another thing to notice, I think, is they did press us a lot today and we didn't look too flaky against that today. I thought we kind of coped with that quite well. And even when we were a good team, we've been a bit dodgy with the press. Even when Poch was, you know, in our pomp with Poch, mm-hmm. we, we sometimes never suffered it well. But yeah, I thought they had a good game. They had a lot of good energy. And I think, like you said earlier, it was... I think both teams were just um, not doing a good job of picking the final pass really today. So that probably kept some of the... the the chance creation numbers. I was down. just going to ask: Do you think do you think Conte took Reggie off because he was had a bad game, or was it more of, of a tired thing, fatigue? Yeah, I think fatigue, hundred percent fatigue. That was a worry today because I think we put a lot of effort into that Vitesse game. I think we forget that that we had the same players played a game just two days ago. And one, one of the things I've been quite impressed down that left hand side um, has been um, Davis and um, Reggie combining. So um, there's a couple of times, particularly against Vitesse, where um, Davis would overlap him and um, Hoybier was dropping in to fill uh, Davis's space. And then today, um, Davis got a shot away early in the first, in the second half uh, where Reggie passed inside and he was on the edge of the box. And that was in open play. So if your centre-backs are getting up to the to the box in open play, then, you know, that's that's interesting. I think that's part of his system. Like Romero and Davis mm. are allowed to kind of just follow along with the attack. Because Conte wants to attack numbers. He wants four, five, six to just get into the box. Yeah. I, I thought in the Vitesse game, um, Royale and Romero were swapping positions quite well. So Romero would be going wide and, and Royale was dropping back into a centre-back But position. that's also why Davis is playing, because he's left-footed. And he's the only one that kind of can... It's so tight angles when he wants to play out from the back or when he wants the cross to come in. and So it's all thought out, which I kind of I kind of respect that, that maybe I yeah. would play Sanchez, but I get why Davis is playing. 
I think it's going to be fascinating to see, and I know Milo, we've talked about this um, off record. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how these players shape up the chance they've got. Because as, look, I think Royal was really strong today. To me, mm-hmm. I thought Reggie had some really strong moments. But these are such important positions in an Antonio Conte side. I do wonder whether we're going to see, you know, January upgrades if we can get. Them. Uh, I mean, look, we'll speculate on that in weeks to come. I don't want to get into that right now, but I, I, I will call those two players out as players. I thought who really did put an excellent shift in it looked like they're really 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 working hard for this manager and he has real expectations yeah can I just come in briefly on the kind of Conte signature moves because you you touched on the fullbacks crossing to the other fullback or you know crossing to a fullback coming in at the the uh, far post we saw quite a lot of the long diagonals switching place. So Romero did a couple. Uh, both Hoybier and Skip did them out to e- either wing back during the game. So you know, there's, there's quite a lot we're seeing there in terms of uh, already after a couple of um, a couple of sessions, which are um, you know those kind of Conte Conte moves that we'd expect to see. And you know, that when we talk about kind of the the poorer players, the less technical players in the side, those automizations that we're expecting. Um, to see from Conte may well be a way around that. So, you know, Skip or Hoybier, who aren't always the best in possession, if he takes the thinking out of that, so they don't have to take take the ball, look up, see a pass and then pick it. It's when you're in this position, you're knocking it out to Reggie on the left wing or you're knocking it out to Royal on the right wing first time without looking. You know, you're here, you do this pass, they make this run. Once that's trained, in, uh, trained into the squad, then maybe that's less of an issue. On that point, I would say, also, he has this thing where so the ball goes out to to the center backs on the sides, and then either Lucas or Son runs or Kane comes to to meet the ball, and then they flick it to the to the wing backs, and then they turn and then go yeah. towards goal. So all that is based on one two touch run, and so I think you know Delhi who has a great capacity to run, and where he doesn't have to take make a decision deep could really benefit from that. And the other side that I kind of think that we maybe mm. should come back to is the formation. Now we, I, I was kind of surprised that we played a 3-4-3. I was expecting maybe 3-5-2 because what happens now is that Kane has to yeah. come down and do that touch and then run and then turn. So he, he comes really deep. And when you play against Everton, who plays basically 4-4-2, they're always overloaded in the midfield, so they won more than us. So I think we're going to see him tinker with that a little bit. Maybe Skip's red card, maybe Skip missing leads gives him the opportunity to do that. I think one thing that we do need to pick up on, which is, you know, unless this tightens up, these two factors tighten up, we can talk about shapes and drop-ins and drop-outs, whatever, we can talk about it all you want. Unless we actually all, as a team, have immaculate first touch, on the ball it doesn't mean anything and one of the more disappointing things today slash one of the better things to see today because again Antonio Conte is giving no one anywhere to hide he's not giving our chairman anywhere to hide he's not giving our first team players anywhere to hide he's not giving anyone anyone to hide so if you're not up to it you're going to be found out by this manager and I have to say you know people on this pod will have heard us from time to time question Lucas who is you know Doubtless has some excellent attributes and has done some amazing things. But we ask questions because 
of things like his, his loose touch. And several times today, he cost us, I thought, very important attacking progressions with a bad first touch. And it's interesting, Oliver Skip today, to my mind, did not miscontrol one pass. He didn't miscontrol one ball. He was technically perfect. Wasn't necessarily very exciting, although he did turn and spin a lot more than I've seen him. Much tighter. That's something that I wonder if it's going to improve with fitness. And I wonder if we're just going to see that some of them are just not quite what we need in that kind of elite game. I would just add to that. I think Skip is the clearest kind of example of someone improving from one game to another. He's such an intelligent player. So you could clearly see yes. the, with, against Vitesse, he had like he made these mistakes. We had one, two touches, and then he got caught out. Whilst now he, you know, one touch, go, one touch, go. And I think... I think Steve, I mean, Conte has a proven system. He's, he's won with the system, with, with his coaching. So it's going to come down to ability and um, ability, effort and, and execution. And I think right. some of that is, you know, some of our players are good enough, but they haven't had the time yet. Mm. And I think, as you say, Steph, some just don't have the ability. And I'm not saying they don't have an ability as a player, but just in the system, they might yeah. not yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, I think on I mean, the the final ball, well, not the final ball, the you know, the the, um, the balls in the final third was something that Conte picked up in the press conference and his post match interviews as well. I, I, I spotted it during the game. I think I, th- I think our balls lacked a little. Um, a little bit of pace in the final third, so there was a little bit under hit, and that was allowing Everton to cl- to to intercept them. And you know, fair play to Everton. I mean, they're a Benitez side, so of course they're well organised, of course they're well drilled. You know, they're, of course they're strong defensively, um, and they they closed out those um, those passing lanes. And because those balls weren't quite zippy enough, they weren't quite to feet. We made it a little bit easy for them, and you know, that's what happens when you're playing you know well organised sides. Yeah, and I think, like you said, and the thing is, if your touch, if if, if Everton are going to close down the spaces, if your touch is not on or the pass is not quite strong enough, you're going to end up with lots of changes in possession. And it never felt today we were controlling the game. We didn't have like a long period where we were controlling it. It was a very open game, I thought. It was very free-flowing. And I think a lot of that was because of the energy Everton were putting into it. It's yeah. early days, though. It's early days. But what it did feel to me was, and it was unlike anything I felt for some time, is that we're tantalizing tantalizing on the edge of controls i mean it was there to be controlled we just couldn't do so whether it be for a slight lack of conviction in that final ball which i personally think is the case i think we're still shell-shocked this is a club that has had the spiritual shit kicked out of it for two years and nuno bless him did manage to stabilize the ship somewhat but he wasn't going to make these players feel any better about themselves so it's a it's a big turnaround it's a big ask and everyone's going to have to be patient but again i thought today there were signs because there were signs that we are going to get into these positions where when that moment is there to be controlled when you're there to be tight we will be controlling games and that was encouraging me i think that's true seth i mean basically we're full circling around to milo's original comments when we first started talking about everton with sort of the talking about the intent and that kind of thing it's definitely there it's i was gonna say i think we've also got to remember that um for the last you know couple of years our forwards haven't really been coached in terms of uh, you know definitive moves we've, we've had a, a series of coaches who want the forwards to improvise or play on intuition so to have a, a manager who's a lot more uh, regimented in terms of the drills and the moves that he wants the players to do is going to be new to them yeah and i will also add to that i mean if you're tired you can't think straight so you know the longer the games goes mm-hmm. on it's going to be it's going to be harder to know exactly what angle because it's that kind of detail i mean it's 
if Davis has the ball and he's going to play out to Reggie and Reggie's going to meet it, he needs to meet it at exact angle Conte mm. wants for for him not to lose the ball. So all that kind of becomes more and more messy. Yeah. And I would also add, against Vitesse, I don't know if it's because they're not as good of a team or if it's an instruction, but we were much calmer on the ball. We kind of invited, we held the ball, invited them to pressure us, and then we, we did, did the, these moves. While now I kind of felt like, especially Hoiberg was very kind of hyped and made a lot of bad passes early on. And we kind of, you know, sometimes it's just about being comfortable in the system, as you might have said. I wonder if the um, penalty incident happened at the wrong moment for us. Because, I mean, obviously we're going to be more tired from playing on Thursday. And then it got a bit hyper yeah. after the penalty, didn't it? Everyone was, everyone was getting a bit wound up. And I wonder whether that just took a bit more out of us yeah. than them yeah. because we were I mean, more that's tired. That's that point I was just going to make because the, the, the crowd really got into it at some stages. Mm. And and the Everton, they can make a lot of noise. It can be quite hostile there. Yeah, but I think we handled it well. But it, as you say, it might have just come at the wrong time where we maybe made our subs and maybe tried to get momentum ourselves. It all got a bit but chaos. I don't know if you guys saw the, the post-game interview, but I kind of felt Conte was really relieved. Like he, these two games were so important, we didn't lose any of them, and so now he can start to work. Because we have to remember again, we mm-hmm. didn't concede any goals. The same players played their second game, and it was away. This wasn't against a team that are pressured. I mean, they needed these points, so I actually think we did pretty yeah. well. Let's round off on that. Absolutely right. And let's also, uh, for those who are going on about our shots on target in this gubbins, we beat Everton today in the XG by <laughs> 0. 0.8 to 0.6. That's the real victory. That's the real victory. That's the real victory. That's it. So Everton 0. 0.6, Spurs 0. 0.8. Today's result at Goodison. I think we're all in agreement. It's been a fine start for Antonio Conte's Tottenham Hotspur and the Antonio Conte era. But now... I want you to imagine you're watching the movies and you're in that bit where you see the screen go a little wavy for a minute because you're going to go back in time to the days of black and white when we had the reserves, the stiffs, the resis, if you will. A simple situation where squad players would plod around some muddy patch of grass in front of a few hundred bovril clutching uh, yellers and the occasional jewel would be found. In the last 30 years, things have become rather more sophisticated when it comes to the importance of not just squads, but specifically young talent, uh, a.k.a. youth players. Thus, this week, we will delve into the current world B-teams, loans and the academy at Tottenham Hotspur. We've recently been linked with a move to buy or link up with Standard Liège uh, with a view to using them to develop young players. And we've recently seen some clubs like Brentford, Southampton and Birmingham scrapping their under-23 teams completely, replacing them with a B team who play friendlies, often against other clubs' first teams. Just to remind people, over the years, you know, we've lost some highly rated young players such as Nani Maduki, Marcus Edwards, Keenan Bennett and Rio Griffiths to European sides, uh, partially because of a lack of opportunities to progress into the Spurs first team, what with the pressure of the Premiership being as it is and every point being vital and so on and so forth. Yes, we're going to be discussing all these matters, but, you know, before we get into it, Simon, would you just explain for our listeners just how does our academy look? Well, basically, we have an academy where uh, players from the age of 8 to 18 are uh, invited or scouted. Uh, We are currently, or every year, we have around 150 players, you know, players at every age group. And then at the age of 18 or 16, um, the best players are selected into the under or get 
invited into the under 18 um, squad. And there's two age groups or two classes or two teams that are from 16 to 18. And then after that process, if you are good enough, you are handed or you are promoted into the developing development squad, which is, we call it under 23. I think that's right. That's right. Did I miss yeah. anything, Milo? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. And, and Ricky, do you think that this academy model prepares players for first team football? I mean, do you think it's a, it's a viable way to do this? Yes, if you'd hope that's the intention, but I'm not sure if that's the reality, you know, really on the face of it. I mean, sure, you know, the environment they're in, especially for Premier League um, clubs at their academies, they've got specialist staff, they've got medical teams, they've got gyms, they've got equipment, you know, they've got all round facilities to give them every chance. But um, it's a big leap, I think, without playing top level league football. And I'm not just talking about Prem football, but if they're not playing any championship level, League One, League Two, etc. games. And I meant the under 23 games can only expose you so far or the, you know, the academy mm. games. Uh, but, you know, possibly playing in the Papa John's has helped that a little bit because they're playing mm. proper grown up mm. men. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I did a little bit of research. I think I read a Telegraph article that said 90% of players in premiership academies failed to turn pro. And also I read another mm. thing that said all boys join in a pro academy. And I take that to mean all UK academies, so like even lower than prem. At nine years old, just 0.5% will make a career out of football. So that's one in 200. I mean, of course... These days, the boys need massive dedication themselves because, you know, these academies are worldwide recruitment centres now. It's not like mm -hmm. just the local kids and that kind of thing. So um, competition is fierce. But um, but I think if they've been with you a long time and once we get to the under-17s, 18s, 19s, 21s, I think, I think we're going to go on and talk about that. I think you've got to start looking at using the loan system, not just for our own mm -hmm. development, but just for the the actual benefit of the kid themselves because they can't you can't stick around to an old age uh, just being within our academy but i mean yeah. some of it's luck depends who your manager is that might cut academies off completely or um, it might just be a stroke of luck someone get injured and then we've got no one to choose from or we're going through a bad phase and we call on those players to try and rescue us so sometimes you just be right place right time i think yeah i mean that's, that would be my big criticism of the kind of latter half of potch's time as uh, as manager is that yeah his reluctance to send players out on on loan meant that we had some really bright talents who really didn't get the chances when they needed it i'm, I'm thinking about kind of josh on and um walker peters and uh, you know, possibly Marcus Edwards, who he bigged up quite a lot, quite publicly, and then you know he couldn't get a chance. And and I think maybe you know some of the players you were listing at the beginning, Steph, the reason that they left was because they didn't get the opportunity. I think and Mourinho actually, I, th I think actually did a better job of uh, allowing players to go out on loan. And uh, you know, if we look at Skip this season, we're seeing the benefit of that. I think here's the pressure of the system versus the time we're in versus the expectation of the supporters. And it's interesting you bring up. Poch's era, uh, because I think the observations are, 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 are well founded. I think you're absolutely right. Albeit, I, you know, I think that Onoma, Onoma hasn't really gone on to have the career that he was expected to by the by the club. Um, and I, I, I felt that he tried several times, but you know, such pressure to 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 remain successful, especially at that mm. time when the stadium was being built and money was tight and so on. Yeah, I'm not criticizing. I know you're not criticizing him, but I, in general, 
you know, I'll throw this open to, to oh, I'll throw it back to you. Do you think that modern football really truly allows anyone other than lower mid-table clubs to develop youth talent? Can any top 10 club in the premiership genuinely look at you and say, well, yep, we know how to bring you through because they're not going to have the chance, are they? Because the exp- if you don't win a game, you're you're blowing Twitter up, you're blowing the social media up and you, you're all shit and you all need to be sacked. And the players destroyed. So, so how do, how can it be tenable? How do we make it work without loans? I think this is where loans come in. I mean, you, you, know, you take Onomar, for instance. We don't know what he would have been like if he was loaned out at 18, 19, 20 and was playing games. And I think you know the risk is that they get caught in this no-man's land where they're in the first-team squad, but they're not getting games, which means they're not playing for the under-23s. And then you, and this is the problem with Walker-Peters, is that you, have a, you, know, you end up having a couple of years where they don't play any football. And you know we're seeing this with Scarlett this season. You know, he's, he's, he's getting kicked around, um, around Europe on a third Thursday night, but he's not turning out for the under 23s very much. So it's, you know, I'm not sure how good that is for his development. Maybe a loan in January would be better for him. And, you know, we do see other clubs, you know, where you're seeing players come through to the first team. You know, we are seeing this this season, as I just said with Skip, you know, the benefit of that season long loan. So, you know, I think. Um, I think it's a really, really, really big jump from the under-23s to the first team. But you can bridge that by um, by allowing them to play first-team football somewhere else first. I would, just, uh, I would encourage any Spurs fan to just, you know, play this game that me and Milo did, which is we looked at all the players that came from our academy between that graduated from 2011 until 2021 and just count, you can count on one hand the people that got into our first team. Now, remember, it's 150 kids every year. So that's Skip, it's Kane, it's Winks, KWP, <laughs> Carl Walker-Peters, and then it's yep. Scarlet, basically. That kind of, and we, and we, that kind of are established squad players. And that hit, you know, hit percentage is kind of, it's maybe 5% of all the people that came to the academy. And then obviously there's people that went away and played for other clubs, but they're, they're few. I mean, it's between five and seven people, seven players. We put Jafford. Oh, Jafford, I'm sorry, I forgot Jafford. Let me move us forward a little bit here in the conversation by bringing in what Chelsea do. I mean, Chelsea fund a lot of their first team and exploit a financial fair play loophole by developing and selling academy players. Uh, and the caveat to that uh, note that we have here is that they also, and this comes and started, I should say, to interrupt myself, by then poaching Frank Arneson back in 2005. You know, they hoover up some of the top young, young talent around Europe, quite simply so as other clubs don't get a sniff. So I think there was one ludicrous statistic uh, in the recent past where they had something like 40, 4-0 players out on loan in various clubs around, you know, the footballing world. I mean, uh, well... It says here, is this something that we should look to do? Which is obviously a note that we all agreed on putting in. I mean, I think it's amoral myself, but are we, yeah, am I, do I have a stick up my backside by saying that? Is this the future? So, what Chelsea are doing here, um, spending on the academy is exempt from financial fair play. So, what they do is they buy all those players, they develop them, and actually they're very, very successful at loaning out players and getting them to a level where they've, they're increasing their market value. Very few of those are ever going to play in the first team or certainly regularly play in the first team. But what they they can then do is sell them for you know 10 15 20 million and then reinvest that money josh mckeckeran is a player that springs to mind as being a prime example of that yeah. if i remember correctly you know let's be clear about what they're trying to do here and i suppose you know there's a bit of a blip at the moment because they had the transfer ban 
and Lampard's time there, which means that a few more of their players got through to the first team. But without that, I think you'd question whether many of those would establish themselves in quite the same way. But, you know, this is this is a way of getting around financial fair play. This is what they're doing there. Yeah, I mean, you know, from that point of view, it's quite successful. And I, I think City are trying to do something very similar. With City, if you look, they're linking up with, you know, they've got, the, their owners have got different clubs around the world and they're moving players around between those. And I think they're, they're also, they're going to use the academy to try and get around financial fair play. Yeah, I mean, Ricky, would you like to see us do something like that? Would you like to see us jump on this Well, I think we've wagon? talked before about, I think, Le- did we talk about it where Levy wanted the kind of academy to be at least cost neutral? In other words, they knew how much it mm. cost to develop a player from a certain age to a certain age. And mm-hmm. it was kind of spreadsheeted out that if we can get X amount in, you know, for certain players, that would cover the cost of all the other players, if you see what I mean. So, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously what's, uh, what Chelsea are doing is on steroids compared to that. I mean, as Milo says, they've spotted a loophole and they're exploiting it. Uh, would I want us to do that? Um, I don't know. I think there's some slight ethical reasons to not doing it. Uh, I think it's a bit of a farm, really, when it comes to players mm-hmm. in that sense. And I'm more minded to... In fact, the idea I had, I think, I don't know if I said this before, I think we should, at some point, you've got to make a call on a player. And I would rather go down the route of selling, a bit like we've done with Sirkin. And what we mm-hmm. should do is try and get buyback clauses or... Uh, sell-on fees and preferably both to all those players because I think if you sell a player to a club they're more likely then to think oh he's ours when realistically we've got a kind of buyback clause and that so they're more likely to integrate them into the team and think they're there permanently and of course it protects our interests I mean they can have them for nothing for all we care but if we've got a buyback or a sell-on we will we will get paid we will get paid at some point down the road that's a bit like Real Madrid too isn't it they we're doing with Reguil <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at the Chelsea model, I'd say I don't, I, I don't think we should be kind of hoovering up players in quite the same way. But I'd be very happy that if the players that we've got that maybe don't quite make the grade, we increase their value by using loans well to give them experience and increase their value. And I think the other thing that we should probably look at is, uh, you know, people get quite um, critical of players who are squad players for a few years and then move on. If you've got those kind of moving through, so, you know, we talked about Harry Winks, who, you know, maybe he'll you know we don't know quite how to do under the current manager but you know if harry winks is in the squad for three four years is a, you know is a, a really useful squad member who can play x number of games a season and then you sell him for a profit you know because he didn't cost anything and bring through some of the from the academy to take his place that's really good use of the academy the question is like are we ever going to spend as much as manchester united city chelsea arsenal because mm. i don't think or feel that we are so the question is if we if we can't spend as much are we being smarter which is basically what this b team model kind of kind of is an attempt it's an attempt from from these lower tier teams this far to be smarter in competing with yeah basically us and the guys that are bigger so what are the merits of the b team model then? well i mean to answer that question with any kind of context um i think you have to find a, a clear example to kind of look at. So Brentford is probably the team or the club that's most famous for scrapping their academy and then going this B team route. So you have to kind of to understand why they, to understand what the merits are, you kind of have to understand why they made that switch and how Brentford and Spurs are similar and how they're different. Uh, so first and foremost, Brentford are club that survive by selling players. So they count on around a million 
pound profit on players to survive every year. So selling players account for much of their income, basically. And I think to kind of know how they came to this point, you have to start where it began, which is in 2012, a guy came, named Matthew Benham bought that club. And he's kind of this gambler dude who used to go to Oxford and he's a physicist. And so he kind of used analytics and math to build his gambling fortune. So he first, uh, when he first bought the club, he started using that data and, and, and math to kind of see how the academy was working for them because they had problems with uh, developing players for the first team, but also they were losing players for, you know, to these bigger academies, to us, to Chelsea, to Man City. The, their best players, when they became 16, would just wait out their contracts and then go to these bigger academies and Brentford basically got nothing. So they sat down in 2016 and they decided to close down the academy and to withdraw from the EPPP, which and the EPP is basically the rules for the academy system, which is kind of controversial in many eyes. I mean, there's rules in there that have different academies and different clubs in different tiers. So uh, Spurs, we're a tier one club, which means that we can recruit players from all over the country. Brentford were put in the tier two, uh, which meant that they could only recruit from a certain distance, the peop- the players that lived from the- in a certain distance from where their club were, were at. But I think the two biggest issues that people have with the EPP is one, it's the tiers, and the second, uh, which is the biggest one, which is the cap on transfer fees. And this cap is based on how many games the player has played for the club and also what level they play on. And just to give you kind of a, a sense of the numbers we're talking, if, let's say, within the EPP, if they have an academy player and that player wants to transfer to another academy, I mean, Brentford basically got between 3,000 and 50,000 pounds. That's basically the numbers we're talking about. So when they withdrew from the EPP, now they could play by their own rules. They could attract more players. They could recruit overseas. They could play international teams, which basically meant that they, instead of playing these 18-year-olds, they could play adults from Germany. They could play you know, the Barca B team or, and they got, you know, Mm -hmm. better competition and better development out of their, out of this B team than they got from, from the academy. So what they did is that instead of having this big academy, they funneled all that money into this B team and had this system where they had 40 players spread out over, you know, their first team and their B team. And the players could, can go, you know, over from one team to another. So their goal is basically, to build up talent that later could be sold for profit or develop players that could go straight into their first team and strengthen their first team. And they were very successful. So in 2016, they made this switch. And just in the three last years, they sold players for a total of over a hundred million pounds. And I'm talking players like Watkins, Ben Rama, mm-hmm. Mape, Konsa. So just in these few, and also you could add to that, they for seven out of their first team players come from the B team. They've made that profit from the championship. Exactly. You know, they're, they're in the second tier. So 
And you know, you talk about that that difference in um, compensation for academy players. You know, we we've we, you know, Steph, you started off by talking about that in just in terms of a few we've lost. Uh, the market value of those players was you know a lot more than we we would have got for them. So I mean, to to get back to your question, then the merits are for Spurs that okay, we would never scrap our academy. That's basically, I mean. There's value in our academy, and base, and we do get players out of our system. We also can compete. We can pay our the best players out of our academy. We can pay them. I mean, the merits are if you can't outspend them, you have to outthink them. So if we can't big a more competitive academy than Chelsea or Arsenal or Manchester or these other teams, maybe we can compete by giving our academy graduates, like instead of having a developing team, what would happen if we had a B team where players like Scarlett, like Divine, instead of playing these under 23 uh, tournaments or in that, I don't know what that league is called. It's called like League Two. Premier League, Prem, Premier League Two. They could play against adults. Brentford's B team is considered one of the best in the in, in the world. They beat the Bayern München under 19 academy play. So I think that's where I kind of see... Uh, Simon, um, how, how, are, how are Brentford B team getting games in? Is it all just, uh, is it all friendlies or in kind of... Just as regular uh, as our team. But basically. are they not in a league in particular? Are they playing like tournaments and that no, kind of no. thing? Yeah, they, they, what they do, they make, they play friendlies against teams yeah. around the world. It could, but it could be friendly against, you know, a Copenhagen team or uh, a friendly against Barca's B team, as I said, or yeah, they can play whoever, whenever. And I think COVID has hampered that a little yeah. bit, hasn't it? Because I think they were doing kind of international tournaments and stuff like that beforehand. And since travel's been restricted, that's made it a little bit more difficult for them. So what do you guys think about a B team? I might, look, I mean, my personal opinion is that a, a B team is great, but I think that we would actually want to try with a bunch of other clubs to build a B team league. So as those players feel that they're playing for a title of some sort. Do you think it would run alongside the academy but it would fill in maybe above, let's say, under 18 ages. So once exactly. you're above under 18, yeah. I think Brentford are doing a fantastic job, and especially the way you've detailed it, it's impossible to argue that that is a superb model. But I just think it's a model that I don't think it's a model. I just don't see how we could implement it to the level of success that Brentford do because the expectations week to week are so much higher. And th- that that includes the expectations of the players who wear our shirt, whether they be like, you know, the Marcus Edwards of this world who are like, well, why aren't I a first team regular? Oh, screw this. Uh, you know, whatever. I, I'm going to go where I can or, you know. And I just don't, it's it's a hard path. And, and I'm not seeing that we've been in the selling sense. I mean, we've not, not really developed too many players that have gone on to make us that much money. I mean, I guess Walker Peters is, is, is one player. I think my argument here is, is this. So right now we have a development squad where players under 23 can play. But the step from the development squad into the first team mm. is so vast for a club like Spurs. Because one, I mean, we have this expectation of winning now and being on top. But the second part is, so we have these players that we put out on, we, we want to get, we get them on loan and we don't know where to go and, and stuff like that. So having, instead of having like this development squad and this first team where the gap is so wide, what would happen if we had basically like Barcelona or a B or, team I know what you're saying yeah. I, know, I know what you're saying I, I, and let me feed this into the question that I was going to ask which is perhaps the alternative to that is 
and it, it partners up with some uh, something that we're we're linked with. We're linked with a move to invest in Standard Liège. You know, that is the other way of surely dealing with mm-hmm. development squad players is to have a regular competitive European partner who is happy to take those players on and develop the rest. And I think, you know, I suppose it comes down to a, a straight choice. Which would you prefer? You know, a, a B team and a B team league um, or a partnership? Uh, Milo, address that. Address the standard Liège rumour and then give us, give us, you know, give us which you prefer, and then we can go around. Yeah, I mean, on the standard Liège thing, um, a Belgian football journalist um, tweeted that um, Levy was in talks with um, the standard Liège uh, owner, Bruno Vernazzi, to get a partnership between the two clubs. And Vernazzi evidently is um, looking to sell his share in the club and any kind of interest in buying it. Now, you know, what we're talking about there is something that's you know, reasonably common. You know, we talked about Chelsea earlier on. They've had a relationship with Vitesse in the past and sent lots and lots of players on loan there. And um, and City have got links with uh, Girona. And if you look at the two Red Bull clubs, they they, they you see a lot of movement between those uh, between those two as well. So this is something that that is already happening uh, across Europe. From our point of view, Brexit or kind of post Brexit, the uh, working restrictions for non UK players are quite restrictive, particularly for young players. So having a European club where we could sign players at 16 from across Europe and put them there with a view maybe to transferring them to us later on once they meet the work permit requirements would make a lot of sense. And then the flip side of that is exactly as you were saying, Steph, it means that we would have somewhere where we could send some of our players and they could just, they could get first team football in a, you know, a decent league uh, and get experience. I think there's merit in that from, you know, from all of those, for all those reasons. And we're going to miss out on a lot of potential players if we if we don't have a way of uh, of signing from across Europe, which you know we're, we're barred for do, from doing now. In terms of kind of what I want, I favour a mixed economy. To be honest with you, Steph, I don't think there's one or other that works. I, I you know I I think uh, links with European clubs makes a lot of sense. I I'm very much in favour of loaning out players to um, to English or you know clubs you know all over the place uh, in order for them to get experience and. I think there. I think the B team model is interesting. I think um, properly done. I think it could work quite well. I don't think that playing friendlies against you know Barcelona or Leighton Orient is going to be less attractive than playing Premier League two fixtures for a lot of our young players. I think you know it depends on on how you approach it rather than necessarily the competition you're in. Um, and I would imagine that um, not having to go to kind of the current uh, model for compensation would be very attractive to Levy because he could get a lot more for the players that we do lose. Yeah, I was just going to I was just going to add. I mean, I think this feeds into what Simon was saying. I mean, all of what you're saying there, Milo, is basically smart thinking. And you hope that the people at the club are thinking that way as well, because we need to cover all bases. Because I think even our our pod pod colleague, um, Gareth, said the other day, we are still really a challenger club. And Mm -hmm. as Simon says, will our spending ever get to, well, it's probably never going to get to City or Chelsea's size unless their owners bugger off. So we've still got to make, we've got to be smart about it. And that's one thing we've complained about in recent years. We've not necessarily been smart about it, but it might be a perfect storm with, we will be richer than we were before because of our income. And mm-hmm. but if we can supplement that with some players where we're either earning money on them or they actually do become first team players. I mean, if we can find a way into that and try and cover all the bases, especially with the legal requirements, as you say, about European entry and that kind of thing, because we've now left Europe. So hopefully, fingers crossed, that is something we look at and we cover all bases on that. So, of course, it is ironic that, be, you know, when we drafted, uh, you know, this week's show up, 
a certain man had not entered a certain building and thrown his light, shadow, whatever you want to call it, across the club. You know, Antonio Conte's not especially known for being, I want to say this politely because it sounds like a slow and it isn't, but he's not known as developing young players. He likes to win instantly and he knows how he likes to win and that usually requires a certain amount of nous and experience and so on and so forth. So, you know, what do we think the Conte effect is going to be on our academy players and their progression. What I mean, let's take Dane Scarlett as an example. Where do we see Dane Scarlett's career going with our club now that Antonio Conte is in charge? And where would you like it to go? Hopefully they're both the same thing, but you know. I'd like him to be going out on loan in January and I'd like us to be signing a reserve striker who can cover for Kane in January. So you saying he... He's, he's not maybe got much time for the academy players. Scarlett was the only um, young player, academy player, uh, in the squad on Thursday, which is, again, a marked change from what we've seen under the under Nuno. At Chelsea, he didn't give uh, many games to young players. So I think we're going to see that drop off, in which case I would be looking to get anyone half decent out on a new contract and out on loan. Um, and we've, we've got to worry, you know, if you look at the Mark and Day, and uh, whose contract's up in the summer, he's having a great, great season for the uh, for the under twenty threes. I think he's joint top scorer in the in Premier League two at the moment, um, and has had a couple of uh, Player of the Month nominations. You know, he's having a great season, uh, but we're going to lose him. You know, he's had he's he's had one game or you know one substitute appearance for the first team. I'd like to get those players first team experience. And I know it's difficult, but um, and you know it's particularly difficult when their contract's running down. Uh, but we've got to convince them that their future lies with us. Um, and that there's a route into the first team and that they'll be getting competitive football in order to aid that. I mean, thinking, I mean, adding to that, I mean, if if we pick up and we do improve, I mean, the other barrier to them is, I mean, if you become Champions League qualifiers again, uh, it's not like you've got the Europa Conference League that definitely will, you know, you'd entertain some maybe academy players on. But if, if all your football consists of Champions League, Premier League, and then just you're left with kind mm-hmm. of maybe low FA Cup draws against low teams and League Cup draws maybe. So they're... They're, they're, yeah. you know. I have to interrupt because never forget that we do have in our ranks of support a considerable amount of trophy hunters, trophy wankers. They and they make this very difficult because even those lower t- quite quite lower tournaments you're talking about, people go absolutely ballistic if we don't try and win them. This is kind of where I was going with this whole thing, which is when Conte came in. I mean, it's it it massively, you know, shifts the trajectory of of the club where we're going. So now, whilst Nuno was this, you know, dude that was supposed to play our youth and you know develop our youth and get them into the first team and this whole rebuild narrative. I mean, if the expectation is for us to be a top team to to spend more and all these other things that you know the the wankers and I'm doing this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> what they want we, we need to have an aggressive and very clear plan regarding our youth so i mean as we, to, to, to go back to chelsea they sell their place they are aggressive with getting them loans so if this is to the trajectory and this is what we think which is i don't think one development player is going to see the day of light in our in any of our tournaments we should be trying to get you know, as much money we can for those that want to leave, or they should go on loan. And we should mm-hmm. be very clear about that because we can't really, you know, we, we have to be clear about what's our culture, where we're we going, 
what are our ambitions, and how do all these different parts of the club? I mean, I think this is where we need Paratici to be a charming bastard. Yeah, but also Paratici, he's 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 going out and signing Sar and 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 Gil. His role, though, isn't just around the first team. His role is around all of the football side of the club. So, you know, part of his role is to see that management of yeah. uh, players through from the academy into the first team. And if there aren't those opportunities there, then he needs to be getting them exactly. first team games, either to get them experience or to increase their value so we can sell them. Yeah, and I just brought those two up because to say, I mean, if we're signing that kind of, you know, young players that are supposed to get go into the first team in the next year or two, and be, you know, regulars. Every time we mm-hmm. do that, we are taking a spot from an yeah. academy player. I'd say there is one slight irony with Conte because because his game is so full of automations, you would think that if I did need someone, and let's say I can't go to the market and stuff like that, it's almost like yeah, if this if this if this younger player is fit enough, he's got the energy, he's got the drive, I could just teach him the things I need to do as a cog in the wheel, and that might be good enough. I mean, we've seen it with other teams where teams have been greater than mm. the sum of their parts, and then when they sell off some of those parts, that player's not so great anymore because obviously he was very effective in mm. a well-oiled machine do you think that's his expectation yeah do you think they've talked to him about you know no he's not interested in that i'm just saying it's an irony basically i'm just <laughs> yeah, saying yeah, it's an irony is, yeah. it is an irony but i'm, I'm just saying because because what i kind of feel now is it's a little bit confused so we're not mm-hmm. doing the chelsea thing where we are you know vacuuming up and spending loads of money to to kind of get an edge but we're also not you know we're not RB Salzburg where we're playing all our youth so I'm kind of trying to figure out okay how do we get an edge how do we kind of because also you know I don't know if you guys have heard this criticism which is the Premier 2 or the Premier League 2 that because it's a lot of academy trained players the way everybody plays is this Mm. possession based very technical very rigid kind of system so it's not only about you know the physicality of playing adults it's also you know, playing in not automated, automated exactly. systems. It's different kind of oppositions from different cultures. You know, so I'm kind of confused. That's what I'm saying about what is our plan for our cat going forward? Is this academy structure, which is very big in England, but not as big where I come from in Sweden. In Sweden, we have BTs. In Denmark, they have BTs. In Spain, in Germany, they have BTs. So I'm saying it seems to me that there's this uh, old thinking of how it works. And we ha- we're starting to see you know, these data-driven, new ball, small clubs trying to change stuff. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's a better way. I think what we've concluded here is that, number one, the whole notion of academies, B-team, Premier League 2, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's at a flux point. And whether we like it or not, it's still being dictated by the biggest money out there. It really is. And so it is going to be fascinating to see where it goes. I think even in our conversation, you've heard that, you know, we've, we we've maybe have slightly different opinions as to which way we think would work best to develop the young talent we have. And equally, it is way too early to judge what Antonio Conte might do. However, we all expect that he's not going to develop this. So once again, you're right, Simon, when you say there is a, there's a certain confusion in how we're going to be dealing with our own potentially prodigious talent. But the one thing we do know about Antonio Conte is he likes his systems. He wants to win. So it sort of answers that side of it. Yeah. But it does raise the very interesting question. You know, we've signed the likes of Saar, you know, and and, and what are we going to do with these players? I mean, you know, what are we going to do with Brian Hill? I mean, it's a fascinating thought. Is Brian Hill, who to me looks to be a, 
a very trainable player with an engine, an endless engine, is he going to become a Conti asset off the bench? You could see it, but equally, we cannot be sure. So I suppose the conclusion is that, yes, it's all in a tremendously huge flux point. None of us are too sure where it's going to go. Big money is dictating it. And uh, watch this space. But hopefully, we'll be getting you to think a little more, not just about, you know, the 11 players on the pitch and the substitutes bench, uh, but your own expectations and what you want. We all want trophies, but we also want and love our homegrown players. How proud are we of Harry Kane? You know, how proud were we of Harry Winks for a long time, I'd like to mm. remind you. Um, and so for that to happen, we also have to show a little patience and we have to understand that these players, you know, need to be seen and need to be supported, hopefully in our shirt. But as we say, which way is the pendulum going to swing? We don't know. But what we do know is we love Antonio, don't we? <laughs> youth or not we do love him your new man crushes it yeah it's, you know I hate to say it but it kind of is <laughs> yeah I really do hate to admit it he sort of dimmed the light he's dimmed the sadness you love a smooth fucker in a sharp, sharp suit don't you oh I hope oh, I mean I, just I just wish the, the listeners can see Steph right now he's, he's, <laughs> oh, he's, he's in the dark oh my word I He's just there's a glorious sunset outside the window of the place I'm staying. I've watched this I've watched this beautiful sunset and I can see Antonio on the sideline beseeching. You just want to hold him and sniff behind his ear, don't you? <laughs> I'm not I'm not, yeah. I'm not I wanna, beating that. I wanna know I'm not beating that. Thanks. Thank, I can't beat that and I can't deny it. <laughs> Thanks, lads. Thanks very much. Cheers so for having me. I just want to say this is my favourite Spurs podcast. Even now, you know, I want to sniff behind Antonio's ear. <laughs> <laughs> Antonio, Antonio, where for art? Now, Antonio. Oh, dear. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you, Milo. <laughs> Next week, it's the international break, so we can't wax lyrical about me sniffing behind the ears of our new manager, but we'll be able... Oh, dear. Is this really going to make the pod? It is, know. isn't let's it? Let's find out. <laughs> All right, let's find out indeed. But what I can tell you is we'll be back to talk about something Spurs-related next week, even though it is an international break. Oh, I've got this note here which says I vote we spend 30 to 40 minutes eulogising the... Let's not go there let's just say we're going to keep you guessing as to what we'll talk about next week but i can promise you it'll be colorful fun entertaining informative and all the other things that we consider the game is about glory to be you can find us on twitter and instagram so give us a follow say hello if you like the pod and have a spare minute we would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on itunes if you're listening on your iphone do it now don't wait get on with it Ah, that was an instruction thank you as always thank you for joining us and we'll see you next week